This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin. And today I'm joined, also in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, but not usually here, is Jean Ross. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. How's your bubble life been? It's been really good. I've been by myself, just with the dog. And then just opened up the bubble a little, bo- little more to my children who are living in their own bubbles. Did you get out and get some exercise? Every day, Sam. I do three and a half kilometres and the dog does seven. By the dog walking backwards and forwards? Running up and down, yes. Not on some kind of weird time loop? In the forest, Signal Hill. So did you get lots of work done in lockdown? So much work, but I would have liked to have done so much more. But the thing was, the the impact of working with 108 students, nursing students, and keeping them um, within a work schedule and a team of, um, of staff has been very busy. But I do have a long list of things that still need to be done. What did you do with them, with the nursing students, about placements? Well, the placements were stopped, the clinical placements. That was a directive from the DHB and from the Ministry of Health um, and Nursing Council of New Zealand. So what we did was we said, right, we're going to keep on going. So we changed our whole year timetable so that they had all their theory and are still having their theory um, and exams and um, writing their assignments and essays in a shorter time. But it means that from the 29th of June, they will be free to go into clinical um, and to graduate by hopefully the end of the year. And you've also been doing some research. Yes, rural nursing. Rural nursing. So you're a bit of a rural nursing queen. Well, let's say I've um, got a really good 25 years of politi- politically um, ensuring that rural nurses are heard, have a really good postgraduate education, undergraduate education, and, um, and a voice. So why rural nursing? Um, passion of mine. Um, something that happened, well, I'm, I come from a rural area in Wales, and when I came to New Zealand, I lived and worked in rural Otago, sorry, rural, um, rural Oxford, which is in, um, um, by Christchurch, well an hour's drive from Christchurch, and I was invited in 1994 to put together the first ever Centre for Rural Health, which meant I was an advocate for health practitioners, and eventually after some research, the identity of the rural nurse came about, and so from then on, an education, a postgraduate, support, networking, you name it. And it's different because they kind of have to be generalists? 
rural nurses are generalists and um, at the time in 1994 their practice was not identifiable very much they had a broad scope of practice and they did exactly what the GP asked them to do if the GP wanted to go fishing for the afternoon, the nurse was on call without any advanced training. So when I saw that, I came along, put recommendations to the then Southern Regional Health Authority, and they asked me to do a piece of research that I did, and then I gave further recommendations that they needed a postgraduate education. And then Clinical Training Agency came to the, the fore, and that's how it all happened. And over the last few years, you've been developing a model of rural nursing practice. Yep. Yep. And over the last year or so, you've been actually talking to rural nurses around about what it is that they they do. Mm-hmm. And over lockdown, you've been following up with how has lockdown gone? Yes. Yes. So just as you've said, I have constantly researched rural nursing for the last 25 years, have developed a model which I call a matrix, and that helps them identify their practice. And yes, in 2017, 2018, I was lucky enough to get some funding um, from Otago Polytechnic, contestable funding to undertake a research project because I knew that there are many, many rural nurses who will retire soon. And I wanted to capture their story, having been practiced over 15 years in rural and also developed many different models to ensure that the health of rural communities is maintained. And therefore, in lockdown, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to go back to those nurses that have been published in this book called Stories of Nursing in Rural Aotearoa, A Landscape of Care, and ask them their experience of COVID-19. So we've got two to hear from today? We do. So who have we got first? Well, we've got Marg Hunt from Northland, and she's an ear, nose and throat specialist nurse and has been doing that role for over 40 years. Takawinga Marg. Um, I uh, live in Kirikiri and I am from, work in Kaitaia Hospital and Bay of Islands Hospital in the mid, mid and far north. I'm a clinical nurse specialist in ENT head and neck, uh, delivering services to clients in my own um, self-led clinics uh, five days a week, and of which one day of that is private in a GP surgery for patients who can self-refer to me. Um, I've been doing this for 1978, 1978, so whatever that is, 40, 42 years. in this particular specialty. I've had a break and did, you know, baby stuff and um, plunket nursing, but always came back to ears. So, um, and I do cover a large range. And at the moment, I haven't had a specialist visit with me now for 16, 17 months because we're um, down in the team. So I've had to provide more services than is normally asked of a clinical nurse specialist to help with the triaging for the population to make sure that they get uh, to clinic promptly. So, um, yeah. Um, So, typical day starts at five and finishes at six uh, because I have an hour and a half to travel each way to Kaitaia. So, um, I do quite big miles, um, but that's part of my debriefing time when I go home. Um, And also my thinking time. So how did she respond to COVID? 
Well, I asked her that and um, this was her response. Society, well, I guess I have to talk about COVID because I came back to New Zealand from Australia on the 16th of March, which was the first day of self-isolation after travel. So that was locked down in my own house with my husband at one end of the house and me at the other because I had to keep the distancing going. Um, Ten days later, I think we went level three, level four very quickly. So I was locked out of work, basically, because I'm over 65. So um, that was an issue. But my clinical leader in Whangarei is a specialist, and he got the Zoom sorted and also access to the hospital through the computer. So I was able to beaver away organising all the patients that had had to be cancelled for the next six weeks, six to eight weeks, um, into prioritising their return to clinic um, given their need, rather than, okay, so you missed your appointment, you should come in now. It was a, it was more needs-based assessment than, than actual time, time frame. Um, so that meant I was phoning my patients and talking with them daily. Some of them needed um, some intervention with drops, um, particularly some of my children who've got discharging ears, but they're chronic ears. So talk with a GP, get the prescription made up, get the family to pick the prescription up or make sure that they could get the drops. Or families needed reminding about the um, treatment plan that we put in place had this if this scenario unfolded so um, for a lot of patients it was reassurance in the first instance for a lot of patients it was the first call from a health professional to say how are you how are you doing what's your bubble like how are you managing uh, one old man I talked to hadn't been out for food for four weeks and was running out of food so I managed to get a food parcel dropped to him because he was frightened to come into town. It was just the little things, really, more than anything, that um, that, that that talking that was really, really critical. So um, in terms of how did I prepare for COVID, well, I couldn't because it was forced on me. Although when I left for Australia in Mar beginning of March, you could see it was on the horizon. It was still what ministry was unfolding then uh, with regard to hand hygiene and um, nose blowing, coughing, that sort of scenario. It hadn't come to any firm decisions. So, yes, it was out there, but it wasn't on, the, on everyone's radar. Um, so um, not being able to physically work for the eight weeks was certainly challenging because I'm a very active person and... Um, <laughs> But it was nice to actually deep, take a big deep breath and reflect on my practice. And did we need to do it this way? Um, yes, you do need to suction wax out. You can't put the phone to someone's ear and say, right, wax is all gone. <laughs> it's not going to work. But um, it was um, thinking about can we work smarter, not harder? You know, maybe, maybe talking more with our patients and reassuring them that this is a progression of normal. Um, rather than um, saying, oh, well, you better come in and see me. Um, it's actually putting the power, the power back to the patient rather than us making the decisions for them. So it's that, that empowerment switch, um, which that's a lot of them, that was all they needed. Oh, yes, that's right. You told me to use oil. Yes, I can do that. And then I'll call you if I'm still having trouble. So it was that, that um, 
getting them to think about it. Um, so um, working slower, coming back from COVID, I actually came back in level three and clinics are half hourly appointments now, cleaning, lots of cleaning in between patients, which is um, okay, that's fine, that's wiping hard surfaces down. Um, means the patients get good good amount of time from me, but it means that the other half of the patients that I would have seen in that quarter hour slot are missing out. So I've got a backlog of 489 patients. So we have to work. So I have to work a little bit busier. Um, it's been, for the, for the patients though, uh, a lot of them coming to me in level two, it was been their first outing. So that, that was an interesting talk, you know, they wanted to catch up, they wanted to see things, they wanted to know how everyone was, a um, little bit of social engagement, but for them it was also, well actually we quite liked our bubble, we may go back to it and just carry on. A lot of the older, over 70s, don't want to change because they feel safe. And it's keeping that infection at bay. Um, Social distancing is the new norm. I see it in the waiting room. We've got our chairs well spread out um, and they're quite happy to sit. Kaitai's, and, and same with Bay of Islands, they all, all the people know each other, so they all, they chat, they cordial with each other, you know, how's so-and-so, how's so-and-so, and that's not happening and that's a bit sad because that was a kind of a um, catch-up for them in the waiting room um, because we're keeping them apart. Um, but they get it. They all of them get it. I've only had one out of the last three weeks who thought COVID was a nonsense and um, didn't know what all the fuss was about. Um, hand washing. Certainly, the hand washing has paid dividends. I, all my patients have come back. There are no colds in any of my children. There's no coughs. There's no flu-like symptoms. They are well because they've been in these bubbles. So it's really pleasing to see this far advanced already into the year that um, the population is so well with their ENT portfolio, but also their chests with um, post-nasal drip, stuff like that. Um, yeah. Um, to make it work for me, um, for the challenges that I encountered, thank goodness I've been in this a long time because I had networks established I don't think I could have done it quite so well without being able to phone a practice nurse or a GP and say, hey, I have just been speaking to, um, please could you do a script for me? Um, I don't think it would have happened quite so timely. Yes, I had backup from my specialist, but he was busy already. Um, and I prefer to use the patient's practice so that they have a history of what is actually unfolding in this patient and what the request is. So that the GP... Um, the GP uh, relationship continues with full history. Um, the time to talk with each patient was important because for a lot of them, they didn't, they were following what was on the news every night. They were turning on at one o'clock on the radio as we all were. And then they were listening to the news each night to see what Jacinda had come up with. You know, was there anything new? Um, when were they gonna be released? But they were asking us the questions us as the first health professional that they were talking to was, so what is it really like? You know, what is this disease that we're, you know, we can't see it, we can't touch it, but we've been asked to do all these things. Um, so what 
what do you think? And, you know, so you go through, you unpack what they're doing. Yes, that's fine. That's fine. That's great. You might want to think about when you go out or if you get your food delivered, that there's some non-contact or wiping, wiping of any boxes that you think may have been touched from an older population. Um, so we were the transmitters of up-to-date health information on a daily basis. So that was critical for the health education to go forward. Um, and so for us, it was taking on the daily stuff. Um, and our DHB was good every day. There was an update on the COVID, um, what was happening. So we could say, yes, we've had 28 infections in our DHB. We've been clear for nearly 40 days. Uh, so there's no COVID in Northland, but there is COVID in New Zealand. So we still need, and we don't know if there's any, you know, all of that stuff. Um, so, and we were the teachers of about this disease process. Yes, you know, this is what, this is what could happen. And temperature, that sort of stuff, these are the things to be aware of. So it was just continuing that one-on-one that -on -one education that we always do. Um, and the encouragers, you know, hold the, hold, the, hold the game, you know, keep this, keep this game rolling because it's for everybody. It's not just, you know, if one person starts to break away. Um, so tell me, Mark, how is that... Um affected the community by all of us being in this together? Yes. We're very kind to each other now, staff-wise, staff-wise, patient-wise. We just give each other a little bit more leeway. Gee, you've been really busy with COVID. You must be tired, you know? We're just a little bit more um, thoughtful toward each other. The other thing that I noticed was sharing what we had. So gee, I want to make this tonight, but I haven't got that. Well, I've got that. I'll bring it to work tomorrow and you can, you know, it was that, yes, we've got this in our bubble. If you don't mind sharing it, here it is. Or for me, I'm a knitter, so it was sharing a wool stash with someone who didn't have any wool to keep busy, an older lady who likes to knit for babies. So it was, it was that sort of, but it was the kindness toward one another, you know, the, the more tolerance, I think, you know, something we should all do anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the time for discussion too around um, the, like on our outpatient wing here, we've got a health and infection control nurse. So she was a point of reference and we could say, listen, you know, I'm doing this, this and this. What about this? Because when I suction a patient's ears, I'm actually aerialising the infection. Do I need to wear a mask? Do I wear gloves? Um, but it is, you know, it is probably that far away from the from me so we thought long and hard we actually went looking for the literature so you know literature search all that sort of research-based evidence sort of stuff and decided actually no we were probably safe but it 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 begged the question to be asked so yeah that um and a tracheostomy that's come in um over covid and been treated and has now gone back to community is what to do with him but um, make sure that he wears his thermovent for um, heating and moisturising, but also for infection control. So, yeah, and it was educating educating family around that. So those sorts of little things, I think that's where making a difference. Yeah, nothing dramatic. I find this very interesting, Marg, how you say the little things, but actually those little things could become very big things, and not just for an individual, but for a community in, uh, at large, and for the health practitioners as well. So, Marg, how has um, COVID-19 changed your perception of um, nursing, of healthcare delivery? Could you explain? 
has it changed my perception of rural nursing? I think we have to realise that we're no man is an island and we all depend on, upon one another critically. And without that, we are really stuck. Because, yeah, um, if, you can't, if you can't bounce on someone or debrief on someone or share your workload, um, then you're, yeah. And that became really critical too, was, gee, um, I've got this patient coming, can you see them for this? And then I can pick up and do what I need to do. You know, flexing out of our actual actual roles into other roles. And at that point, oh, as I was coming, supposedly coming out of um, my COVID self-isolation, I put my hand up to help Mahitahi, one of the health providers here, to go and do COVID screening. Because, I, you know, as an ENT nurse, I'm well qualified to do good throat swabs. And... Um, Yes, it was all organised. Yes, I would do, be doing it in Kitty Kitty, and yes, I would be front of house. And then my clinical lead got wind of what I was going to do, and he said, "Mark, no, <laughs> you're too old. Let the young ones do it." Yeah. So, ageism is well and alive, but I can understand where he's coming from, because um, yes, it wasn't a kind disease to older people from all the. So, Marg, what about the older people in the population? You know, there's been some understanding that they really like to stay in their bubble. What is your perception of that? Have come out of a depression, a lot of them, so they actually know what it means to, you know, live on a, the smell of an oily rag. But even they struggled with... Um, in the main, the community wrapped themselves around any identified older people. Thanks, Marg, for sharing your experience of COVID-19 in the rural area of Northland. It's very interesting and uh, thought-provoking what you've provided for us. So thank you very much. And just in closing, would you like um, a, a, a song or a poem or something that we can that you can dedicate to everybody in New Zealand? I have a, pe I have a piece of music, but it's quite long. But it's something I was introduced to by my mum years ago and it's Smetana's The Muldow and it's a little tiny trickle of a string. It's, a, it's, a, it's an orchestral piece and it starts out as a little tiny quiet soft piece of a stream trickling and then as other tributaries come into it, it gets louder and bigger and wider and noisier till it spews out into the lake or the, or the um, ocean at the other end you know and it kind of felt like that's how COVID felt to me, you know. It started off quietly, slowly. It was there, but it wasn't bothering us. Quiet in the background. Then it got a bit noisier as the broadcast got a bit bigger and a bit more vocal. And, and then it sort of the explosion is, you know, this is real. We've had deaths. And um, and then the settling down at the end is, is what we are now in the tale. So I liken it to that piece of music.
You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. I'm Samuel Mann and I'm talking with Jean Ross, who has spent quite a bit of the lockdown catching up with rural nurses around the country. We've just been hearing from Marg Hunt. Who have we got next, Jean? We've got Kim Carter from Tamuka. Sure. Well, um, my name's Kim Carter. I'm a registered nurse and I work in a general practice of about 2,600 people based in Tamuka, South Canterbury. Um, We're one of three local general practices that service a town in a sort of wider catchment of about 7,000. And we're about 25 minutes away from the nearest hospital, uh, which is sort of in Timaru, which is sort of our region's main centre. Um, we are rural in, in sort of all respects in the sense of the kind of people and the kind of issues that we um, provide services and, and care for. Um, and we have really minimal public transport links into Timaru. So uh, Tamuka is a particularly sort of self-reliant, um, insular kind of community in that sense because our uh, population, you know, we, we've maintained a lot of local services. Um, we're fortunate in that, um, mainly, I think, because of those um, transport issues. And so there are a lot of services and um, and satellites of services from Tamaru that are still based in Tamuka. So we're probably, in that sense, a lot more fortunate than some rural New Zealand towns. Kim, can you just explain to me how your practice is quite different to a lot of other rural nurses in New Zealand. Sure. So um, I'm one of probably a very few um, nurses who are involved in practice ownership and have been for about 10 years. So I was probably one of the first nurses in New Zealand. Um, Well, certainly there would have only been a handful ahead of me that were uh, involved in um, owning practices. And we took over a um, a very, very small um, practice of of a GP that was trying to retire and have built that up. So the practice was sort of under 1,400 patients when we took it over and um, now sits at about 2,600. And uh, I have a co-owner um, business partner who is a general practitioner and her and I worked together for many years before we um, decided to um, go into business together. To, and really that was about exploring um, how we could develop a service that was more integrated, was more uh, intradisciplinary in nature, had more equity, I think, from its foundation, you know, from its ownership structure right through its clinical governance structures, uh, and hopefully um, push that as far as we could in terms of what that model might look like. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're a decade in now and certainly have been on a, on a real journey. Um, and I, I guess at this point in time, we sort of feel like we're flying a bit. It's taken a long time to grow the practice and develop the practice into what we wanted but you know we are essentially at the point where our vision was a decade ago so it's feeling pretty rewarding at the moment really. Can you tell me about um, the change of your practice and the rural community during the COVID-19 lockdown? Yeah so there's been I mean there's been quite massive change and I think any of these sorts of crises or events like this you know really all into question for people what is fundamentally the most valuable and most important to them and I think we've seen you know a real slowdown 
not just the economic slowdown, but the, an actual slowdown in the way people are approaching their lives. I think I'm seeing and I'm feeling um, a lot less consumerism. I'm feeling a lot more that people are appreciating what they have. And I think when what we have is at risk in some way, um, you really get to reframe your priorities. And, you know, I've, I've seen even people that are doing it extraordinarily tough uh, financially, you know, will still um, communicate with me and are positive and smiling and happy. And I think because they realised that their families were safe, that, you know, they've got through that, as difficult as it is financially, they um, value what they have got and they appreciate it so much more. And I, I think, you know, that that's been a quite a remarkable change and long may that last. How do um, rural communities cope with significant change, Kim? Yeah, and I think, Jane, you know, rural communities, this is, you know, the, this pandemic is just one in a, in a string of, you know, fairly regular rural sort of um, issues. I mean, we, you know, we've had the earthquakes in this, you know, the, near this region. We've had, you know, a few months ago, we had massive flooding. Um, and, you know, I think we've had big weather events. And, and I think it just is another example that rural communities are quite resilient. And, you know, I was not expecting anything less, to be honest. I think, you know, whether it's a pandemic or a flood, uh, what we see in rural communities is that we can rely on each other and that is proven time and time again and I think in a way our connections um, that we form in these in these times actually extend well um, outside of them into normal you know normal business as usual and so I wasn't expecting anything less it is always though um, affirming and um, gives you a good sense of you know human nature and in mm. the ability of us to come together when you see it again but you know it, in rural communities it's there all the time I think you talk about evidence and evidence from overseas and um, naturally I think with the demographic of Tamuka you have a large demographic of um, older people how did you plan for looking after the older people of um, of Tamuka, Kim? So it's it's assessing the information you have about the disease, about its um, you know degree of contagiousness, how it's transmitted, thinking about what that means in terms of precautions, um, spending quite a lot of time educating the community about how to stay well, how to recognise symptoms, what to do if they see symptoms. Um, how to access the help that they might need without necessarily pulling up at the front door, um, and then thinking about how we manage, you know, our response to that. So, you know, we, we're a team of health professionals made up of individuals that have families and worries of our own and concerns about our own health, and, mm -hmm. you know, what are we going to need to do around the practice environment to make it safe for us and make it safe for patients to access, you know, what are the implications for healthcare workers that may be exposed in terms of taking that home uh, to our bubbles. And, you know, there was a lot to work through. And, and that's, you can't do a lot of that ahead of time. That is often very specific to the nature of the crisis you're about to face. And so using the clinical information, the evidence from overseas, what they were seeing around transmission and incubation times, um, and, you know, mean length of time from incubation to showing symptoms, you know, using that in our planning to think about the information and advice we were going to give patients around isolation and distancing and all of those things. In South Canterbury, we've got, as a region, we have the highest uh, percentage of the population over the age of 65 in New Zealand, and New Zealand as a whole, on a global stage, has uh, a higher proportion of 
65. So within a already higher than average um, country, we've got a regional average that's higher again. Um, probably uh, a quarter to a third of our practice population are over the age of 65, and of those, a significant proportion are over the age of 80. Um, we have one of the highest rates of uh, over 80s remaining home with support. Um, we, we're very um, low ratios of rest home beds to over 80s in our region. And so, you know, in a way, thinking about that population and um, what would happen, you know, we're going to run out of beds in care, whether they're uh, residential aged care beds or respite or hospital beds. And so those patients are going to need to be cared for and managed at home if they get sick. But then we have a workforce that is often older and our home community support workforce is going to be just as affected by rates of sickness and the need to stand down as anyone. So what will happen to an over 80 year old who's frail and elderly and whose carers don't come for a week or whose meals on wheels don't arrive? You know, this is the reality of what we were facing. Mm. You know, how do you plan for that? Mm. Have you reflected on any um, issues or problems, Kim, that have come up during this time? Yeah, we, we've had some very interesting, I mean, you know, now we're sort of over the, the hump and we're, we're hoping we don't get any more waves of, of disease. But, you know, we have reflected as a team really on it. And, and I don't think there was. It's, it's gone remarkably well. Now, I think that's, you know, a lot of that is because we haven't seen the cases and the community transmission, no doubt. And had we, um, this could be a very different conversation. But I think in terms of what we did, each as individual practitioners and as a practice and as a community, I don't think there's a lot we would do differently. I think there's some comments that I would make around the national response, but I think from what we could control and manage and provide, um, there's very little that we would do um, differently again. Can you tell me about the um, any changes that have come about by using technology, virtual, uh, that you've used with the with your patients? Yeah, I mean, there have been so many out there. And I think um, for us particularly, we, we had already positioned the practice at the end of last year um, towards a sort of more virtual telehealth kind of mm. um, ability to offer those services. So we had done a lot of work around moving our whole IT system to a cloud-based system. And as it turned out, that facilitated us being able to work from home very easily. So we had half of our clinicians and our reception staff working from home and half in at the practice. And our view was if we had a practice exposure uh, to COVID, then we would have a team that could carry on providing services. So we had already had a portal. Um, we already were doing online appointment booking and communicating through the portal with our patients. So we were well placed. But, you know, we went from that weekend where we were first told there'd be a lockdown to coming in on the Monday and essentially going from a normal um, business as usual on the Friday to 100% virtual care on the Monday. And, you know, we were fortunate to be, as I say, quite well placed for that. But that is no doubt that was challenging and um, caused some difficulties for, you know, many services across the country. Mm. Um, mm. There are enormous costs with that. That the positive, I mean, the positives that we were able to do it, and these things worked, and electronic scripts, and prescribing, and being able to send the you know lab forms and investigation requests electronically, um, online video and um, telephone consultation worked really well. 
uh, we had really high acceptance of that. And in fact, it's probably something that we'll not want to let go. Um, it's interesting though that whilst it went really well, it's become very clear to us. It's, quite, it's sort of brought into focus quite starkly um, that, that, that there, are, there are certainly people you have to see. And I think um, there are a lot of things that you can deal with virtually, but there is this, there is this core um, group of services that you can do no other way than by seeing people. And it's sort of made that um, comparison much more stark. I've always felt that there are things that we are always going to need to do face-to-face -face or are better done face-to-face. -face. And it's, I think, highlighted that. But it's certainly given us a level of comfort around the things we can do virtually. And where we can do them well and safely and conveniently, then we should hold on to that and continue. And that's our plan. How do you view yourself, uh, Kim, in the community and your approach to looking after the community and all those other things that go with that of being a rural nurse? Do you consider yourself to be an activist, Kim? I, I mean, I probably do. I'm, I'm, I think of myself as an advocate, probably, is, is the word I would use. And I think that's what nurses are, and I, I think that's what we are. I think we express our advocacy in many ways. We do it. Um, when we go to bat for individual patients and, and helping them navigate and access services that they need. But I think we also do it on a global and an organisational scale. And, and, you know, so I probably would be most proud um, when I'm no longer practising to have been thought of as an advocate in my career. And, you know, that would be something I'd like to leave as a legacy that, you know, um, that myself and my colleagues and, and our service is um, a place where we advocate on all those levels, um, both individual and you know system wide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, excellent. Thank you for your reflection on um, you being an advocate. Um, on another note, would you like to dedicate anything to your community, to rural nursing, or anything in relation to COVID nineteen, so we can remember you by? Well, I could actually recite you my favourite bit, if you liked. That would be uh, lovely, Kim. Thank you. The floor is so yours. This, yeah. So this is um, a little excerpt from the end of Lord Alfred Tennyson's poem, um, Ulysses. And it's something that I learned a long time ago. And it, it's funny, actually, when I, when I saw that you wanted us to think about this, because it's been actually in my mind the last few weeks. Um, but it goes, um, though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong and well, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Thank you so much, Kim, for spending time with us today. Wow, other ends of the country, but the stories are similar yet different. Yes, aren't they? Um, I was uh, really taken aback with um, the dedication of these nurses and um, really about the rural community and how the older people in the community generally um, are feeling safe in their bubbles, but also that these nurses have really looked upon as being the educator of a lot of people in these rural communities. And as Mark said, um, the first point of contact um, and somebody to to um, shoulder some of the issues and things like that. So I found that very interesting. The 
other thing is I found that um, the economics, um, how that is going to affect um, the, the local communities um, has, has been significant as well, but also how the nurses have used evidence-based literature, research, international, national, to really come about and um, support the community. So those are, those are the kind of things that, um, that have been, that come to my, come to my attention. Um, teamwork, very good communication has also, but really being there in that rural community. And another couple of um, interviews that I have done is Julie Lucas um, from the West Coast, and she also um, she's an operation manager for for the for the for the DHB there. But she also has come up with how strong the staff um, that she's working with have pulled together. Um, I think that's something Marg um, from Northland also discussed, but also her model of care have changing and that there's still this significant advocacy for rural communities and um, and about understanding rurality. Likewise Gail Lindley from Balclutha has noted the um, mainly the economic issues about a small very small community how there is going to be an economic um, downturn and she's very concerned of that as part of her practice of supporting that rural community. Um, interesting for us to note and to see how we go forward in support of our rural communities um, in New Zealand. They all talked about changes that they've seen. Do you think some of those changes will stick? I think they will. I think they've seen some positive changes um, and things that have come out of what they would never have thought. Um, I suppose one one example of that is um, social isolation. People have been locked down. Um, li the limited um, colds, flu, um, and so children are healthy. So Marg from Northland tells us they're actually for the first time they're healthy. So this may have a big implication for us moving into the future. Um, be interesting, interesting to see. How do you think it's changed the, perhaps changed the profession of rural nursing? Um, I think that's a little bit early and I would like to um, talk with more rural nurses um, but I actually think the true spirit of rural nursing which is to maintain care for rural community people um, men is maintained but has got stronger and maybe as rural nurses we all now understand the true notion of lockdown, staying together, looking after each other um, and the benefits that has. One of the things that several people commented on earlier in lockdown was the realisation that perhaps their job wasn't essential. Um, and that lots of the jobs that turn out to be essential are ones that don't perhaps get the recognition that they should get. Mm -hmm. And perhaps rural nursing is one of those, those professions that we kind of was almost invisible to many people. That turned out to be really important. Yes, and I think the you know the very um, limited themes that I've um, uh, identified really do note that. But actually, the other thing that um, the nurses were saying is that because these are community nurses, um, general practice has been in the the main hub of healthcare in the community, stayed open, available to everybody, and. Um, to be honest and to um, to really acknowledge the general practitioners, the nurses, 
the communities and that, as some of the nurses have said, um, no man is an island and we all are in this together. Are they in this together as a group? Is there a community of practice across the, the rural nurses? There's a community of practice um, in relation to the Rural General Practice Network, of which rural nurses, GPs, managers, um, um, rural hospital doctors are members of. And I would think that a lot of support has come at this time through the Rural General Practice Network. What do students ask about rural practice? They're very interested. The first thing they ask is, how can I get into rural practice? What do I need to do? And the main reason they're saying that is because the practice is generalist, broad scope of practice, and therefore they ask, what do I need to do so I can be an effective practitioner in rural communities? And I think they already realise the benefits and the advocacy that they want and they want to ensure for rural communities is to work alongside with them. It must be hard, though, to compete against the the glamour. I don't know if it's glamour is the right word, but the the glamour of emergency and, and well, that's intensive a, care. That's a myth, you see, um, Sam, and that's a myth that um, you know quite a few student nurses do come with. I want to work in um, emergency. I want to work in ICU, and I would would think that um, if one thing we realise is the ICUs um, in our you know, um, city hospitals have been had to become well prepared for what could have have eventuated, um, and maybe it's not as glamour as we would recognise. But to me, the glamour is not in the doing and the skills of um, uh, you know fast track nursing. It is about the everyday people in their communities keeping them safe and building up um, an amazing relationship partnership with rural community people that you can work with for years. What do you think we've learnt from this COVID experience for the next time, not necessarily the next pandemic but for the next disruption? Mm -hmm. What can we take away from that from for how we look after people in, in communities? Mm -hmm. Um, support, um, trusting each other, um, that the nurse is an advocate, is a, a very good educator, um, will keep you safe and um, specifically in rural communities is there always there at the end of a phone, day and night. So you're collecting these stories and many more, mm -hmm. what are you going to do with them? Well, the ones I'm doing now will inform practice, the models of practice, the way nurses have adapted, the way that they actually practice um, in rural communities. And as, as you can see, there is some common themes going through that. But again, it's the dedication that they, these nurses um, have displayed once again because the previous research I've undertaken is collecting these rural nurse stories that I mentioned at the beginning of this of this radio interview. And um, 
It just underpins the practice of these nurses, I think, gathering the stories, gathering their experiences through through this COVID pandemic. And um, not only will it inform New Zealand, but also our international colleagues around the world that have actually supported rural nursing for the last 25 years. And I'm very pleased to be able to work with my colleagues and develop up the discourse of rural nursing in New Zealand. You developed a framework of rural communities called CHASE, I can't the, remember what it stands for. The CHASE model, Community Health Assessment Sustainable Education Model. Has this experience led you to rethink it? Has it stood up? No, because as I've been uh, working with the CHASE model this year, um, we worked with virtually um, with um, a rural community in the UK called Bishop's Castle, and we have adapted that CHASE model to accommodate the virtual and working um, in another in an, in another um, country. Um, and then during lockdown, we worked um, with the, collaboratively with the DHB the West Coast DHB with 36 students undertaking community development research project all the way from Karamea to Hast. And we're very much strongly in, built in the 17 um, sustainable goals, um, development goals by the United Nations and do a, undertake a reflection in relation to what those 17 development goals are about and how these projects could fulfil some of those goals. That's quite a role for nursing beyond the caring for the individual, mm -hmm. as the people that we've been talking about or listening to today have talked about both the, the individuals but also the, the community. I, I don't suppose most people would recognise that wider community development role. Well, actually, Sam, I think that's what we've been seeing every day at one o'clock on um, when um, Ashley Broomfield has been talking about public health. And public health is very much part of nurses' practice as well. And it is taking nursing to um, looking at the community as client rather than individual as client. And uh, generally that has been my practice. Um, is to look at the whole community um, and it is from a public health perspective um, but but broader than where Ashley Bloomfield is coming from because it is taking into consideration how we can improve healthcare. We shall have to get you back when you've collected some more of these stories. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. We broadcast every weekday afternoon at three on Otago Access Radio and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and in all of the places where you might get a podcast. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay. Today I've been joined by my colleague from Otago Polytechnic, Jean Ross and she brought with her stories from Marg Hunt and Kim Carter we hope you enjoyed the show
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.